Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and baseball is in full swing now. The birds are singing, the sun is shining. And as we go live today with the podcast, it's the 70th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking baseball's color barrier, one of the most significant events in the history of sports, and indeed one of the more significant events in 20th century American society. And with that as the backdrop, I think it's only fitting that my guest today is a man who, in addition to being an outstanding pitcher, is a man with a very strong social conscience. He's actually one of what Mike Cat Grant has dubbed the Black Aces, the select group of black pitchers who have had 20 win seasons in the major leagues. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, American League All-Star, a two-time Gold Glove winner, and the man that I think deserved the 1980 American League Cy Young Award, Mr. Mike Norris. Mike, how are you? I'm fine, Ricky. How are you today? Thanks for having me on. Ah, I'm doing great. Happy to have you on. Thank you for for doing this. And I, I want to go back and, and, and start with your high school career because you've had a very interesting journey. And go, going back to your high school days, was baseball always your first love or were you involved in other sports as well? Well, I actually, I actually love football more. But I slightly played baseball a little better. And the fact of the matter that having the arm that I had, it didn't make much sense to go out and try to get myself hurt playing football. <laughs> so by my junior year, I pretty much figured out that uh, playing, being a major league baseball is something I wanted to do for a career. What position did you play in football? I was a safety and a halfback. Ah, not bad. Well, th- th- But you're right. Their careers are too short, and we didn't know half of uh half of what was going on with those guys now with all the uh, brain injuries and everything. I'd say you made the right, right decision. Right. As a matter of fact, my high school coach stood up for me and uh, made that decision for me. And he simply just said, because I really wasn't attending class much and, and getting much out of school, so he said, what are you going to do, go to college and, and drop out, or are you going to take this money and go play professional baseball and be a great major league pitcher? And so I rationalized that out pretty good, and so that's why I came up with, uh, I guess I'll stick with baseball. Well, when did you realize that this was something where you were not only going to get drafted, but, you know, that there was a lot of interest in you from from Major League uh, scouts? Well, there was an immense amount of starts to scouts that came out to watch me in my junior year. And we also had another pitcher in the league who became a Major League called Juan Eichelberger, Mm -hmm. who several seasons with the Padres and the Cleveland Indians. I remember him well, yeah. Yeah, he was a good pitcher, good hard thrower. So you get drafted, I think actually before your 18th birthday, you get drafted by Oakland. What's that like? I mean, you're you're a Bay Area kid, you get drafted by a local team. Were you happy to be picked by the A's? I mean, I'm sure you were happy to be picked by, by anybody, but were you particularly happy that uh, the A's took you? Well, yeah, being that they were local, but at the same time, they had one incredible pitching staff, and it appeared to me that it probably would take four or five years before I made the major leagues. With a staff like Catfish Hunter, Vida Blue, Ken Holtzman, John Blue Moon Autumn, et cetera. Because you're, you're drafted in 73, right? Right That's smack right. in the middle of the of, of them winning the World Series three years in a row. So, exactly. So they were they were loaded, no right. doubt about it. So, so you're figuring it's going to be a... It's going to be a while before you're able to crack into that rotation. Exactly. But I got a break because uh, Charlie Finley didn't uphold his contractual obligations to Catfish Hunter, which made it possible for me to get an invite to spring training, and I was one of the 13 pitchers that he invited to fight out for that one job. And, of course, I won. What was that like, your first – well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to go, I'm going to go back first to your minor league experience because – you know, you as we said, you know, you're 17 years old when you get drafted, and you get shipped out to, I believe, uh, Burlington, Iowa, 
to begin Perfect. to begin your professional career. What was that experience like as a young man, particularly as a young black man from California, going out to the, the rural Midwest and encountering what I would imagine for you had to be kind of a culture shock? Exactly is what it was. Uh, the good old Bible Belt. Some really good people there, but... At the time I got back there in 1973, I would just say they were about 20 years behind time. Example being, uh, I had a 115-mile cab ride from Des Moines to Burlington. And when I got out of the cab, uh, this little youngster was about 10 years old, was trying to assist me with my luggage. And as I went around to the back of the truck, I noticed him staring at my rear end. And I thought, well, this is a little young to be something homosexual. So I was very confused. And this went on for about the next two or three minutes. And I finally broke down and asked the cab driver. I said, what is wrong with this kid? Why does he keep looking at my rear end? The cab driver put his head down and looked at me sheepishly and said, he's trying to see if you have a tail. Oh, my God. And... That really blew me away. I was just like, wow, this is unbelievable. So that wow. was my Midwest the first day. Wow. I, it's, that's the thing for me that is uh, so hard to wrap my mind around because I, I know the maturity level that I had or that I didn't have, maybe I should say, when I was that age. And, you know, if you sent me halfway across the country uh, to, to do anything that mattered, I, I would have had a heck of a time holding myself together. And especially, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of uh, that kind of stuff on top of it, you know, the off the field things that we don't think about. Sometimes we think of athletes as that you guys just stay wrapped up in a closet somewhere and then you just pop out and play the game and then you go back. But, I mean, you're you're a young kid all these thousands of miles away from home trying to live your life and do your job. How, how, how hard is that for a young man? Well, I think it grew me up in a, in, a, in a way that the maturation had to come immediately and I had to comply with things that I wasn't used to complying with. Example, when I got down there, I was told, don't mess with any white women. That was kind of an interesting comment to give to me. I mean, you know, I didn't understand that. I mean, I didn't think that was fair. But at the same time, I understood. And so the understanding was, if you do, you'll lose your job. And they'll send you home and release you. So nothing was worth that. And so that's the kind of thing that you understood and stayed away from. And, you know... Uh, that was just something that's a part of being a black man in America. So being used to that, I mean, being from California, we didn't really experience a lot of prejudice. But in a sense, you know your place, you know. And so when you're down south or in the Midwest, you really have to recognize your place. And so it was just a P's and Q's thing. And and you wound up, as you made your way up the up the chain, you wound up pitching in the south, right? Yeah, my next year I had to go to Birmingham, Alabama, which was even worse. Uh, I got called nigger on several occasions and uh, was attacked once. So uh, having a real, real bad encounter with the police one day, that was pretty, pretty scary. But, you know, you survive it and you just, you just, it's kind of like a duck. You just let the water roll off your back and you can't let it weigh you down because you're there for a purpose. And that's to make it to the major league. So, yeah, you as a black person, you go through a little more than the white guys did, but you know, hey, that's just was all part of the game. So you ultimately wind up making your first spring training in. The, the, which year was it you told me was your first spring training? 1974. Okay, so you go to spring training, and you know, you're you one of a bunch of guys that are, that are there, I guess, competing for uh, one rotation spot. What was it like going to your first big league camp and being around these guys that uh, – had the A's on top of baseball. Well, actually, it was kind of comical because line to liners, which is running from the left field foul line to the right field foul line, mm-hmm. which is equivalent to about a 220-yard dash. And we would, and the starting pitches, what I think have to run, I think was eight to ten of those, and the relievers only had to run four. So here I am in the front, and I'm just flying a film, and I'm going back and forth, and all of a sudden these guys. Raleigh going, they got his hands on his knees. Holzman is cursing me out, and they go, "Hey, if you don't slow down, we're gonna beat the shit out of you, kid." <laughs> <laughs> I, 
So, you know, I had to, you know, I had to, you know, I was trying to make the team and be as impressive as I could be, but I also had to learn that, you know, <laughs> there was a, <laughs> there was something I had to adhere to, adhere to and those were those wily veterans, man. <laughs> so what was your reaction to those guys? I mean, do you remember the first time you met Reggie? Yeah. Reggie kind of took me under his wings, uh, but the person that I regard most was Vita Blue. Uh, he and Angel Manguel came by my hotel room about oh about two weeks into me being there in spring training. Of course, every Friday is hog day, so when you're up in big league camp uh, on the 40-man roster, every Friday is a survival day. So if you can make it to payday, which is Friday, then you survive another week. So I was there for two weeks, so I guess they thought, oh, this kid might be around for a while. I think that was most inspiring as having to come out of my room, and that just took me up to another level, you know, just thinking that I could probably be with these guys. You know, it's interesting because as you started to establish yourself as a major leaguer, it was right at the same point where that dynasty from 72 to 74 was starting to go away guy by guy. You, you mentioned Catfish earlier where, where Finley didn't get him his contract soon enough and, and Catfish was able to leave uh, as a... Uh, uh, I don't know. I think mean, I guess Catfish was the was he the first guy to to leave as a free agent uh, in baseball. I think he may have been. So I think so. I, don't quote me on that, but I'm, I'm sure he would have to be the top three. Yes. Sure. So so Catfish is gone, and then uh, in spring of '76, Reggie and and Kenny Holtzman get traded to uh, Baltimore, and and, and Sal Bando winds up uh, uh, going to uh, Milwaukee eventually as well. And so that team starts to uh, kind of disintegrate. What are your memories of of that period of time when the team was kind of uh, being uh, taken away piece by piece by Charlie Finley. The most intriguing thing I ever saw in baseball, probably perhaps, was I came to the clubhouse for batting practice, and Raleigh Fingers and Joe Rudy were in uniform in, in batting practice with me. We come back up from batting practice. They had gotten traded to the Red Sox, who happened to have been in town that night. And by the time game time came, which is two hours later, they were in uniform with their names on the back of their uniform in a Boston Red Sox uniform. Amazing. <laughs> that was the most amazing thing I think I've ever seen in baseball. The Red Sox, their, their equipment guy got that together fast. Oh, boy, was he something <laughs> special, I tell you. <laughs> and then uh, Kuhn comes in and says, "No, you 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 can't sell these guys," and strikes it down. And then that sets off a you know power struggle between Charlie Finley and the commissioner. Right. Well, I think I think the commissioner had started to draw the line when Vida was being sold to the Yankees for one million dollars. That was like, whoa. Okay, wait a minute here. And he pulled a plug on Charlie's stuff after that. What did you think of Charlie? Because he's a guy that's uh, obviously uh, he was no stranger to controversy during his career, and uh, you know was a was a bold personality. Uh, you know, a lot of people have strong opinions about him. Uh, how, how did you feel about Charlie? I actually loved the guy. I, I called him my white daddy. <laughs> and Charlie was probably responsible for a lot of my maturation as well. I learned an awful lot from the man. And uh, he was a disciplinarian to me as well as, you know, he, he would give me the shit off his back. And I remember one on several occasions, on days I would start, he would call me up and go, Mike, if you win this ball game today for me, I'm going to get you a green velvet jacket just like mine. <laughs> I've seen those jackets, Mike. Well, I'll even get you a hat just like mine. <laughs> That's not an incentive, though. I, you right. know. <laughs> I don't know what I tried hard or what. I don't know, but I never did win every time he did that. Uh, <laughs> so the last time he did it, I said, Charlie, damn it, don't promise me that shit. I, <laughs> I don't want it. 
So, so there's some lean years there in in the late '70s in Oakland. Of course, you know, uh, you mentioned Raleigh. Raleigh goes to San Diego. Rudy goes to California. Vida winds up in San Francisco, and the team was really just stripped down. And uh, then Finley brings in Billy Martin, and things start to turn around. What are your memories of? Uh, sort of that resurgence that the A's had after after Billy came on. Well, actually, Charlie sold the team, and then you know guys were running around singing "Ah Ah the Witch is Dead, the Witch is Dead, Dead." <laughs> <laughs> One of those Wizard of Oz things, you know. And so we became we returned to a major league organization because those were some lean years after he sold everyone. I, from seventy seven to seventy nine was really bad. And so when Billy got there, along with the, well, the Haas regime took over, and they bought some class and some mobility back and, and, and fun back to baseball again. So, you know, it was really nice to have them take over ownership. So uh, I think, there's, I mean, Billy did such a great job the first couple of years that at taking a team from last place to first place was an incredible job. 1979, kid comes up to Oakland that uh, looked like a promising young player, name of uh, Ricky Henderson. What are your memories of Ricky as he was a, a young guy getting ready to, to make his way into the, the Oakland lineup? Well, I had the pleasure of meeting Ricky. Uh, unfortunately, Charlie Finley had enough of, of me not winning ball games, and he told me I needed to go down and smell some bus fumes. So, in AAA, you fly, so I went, wow, that must be AA. And, uh, yes, that was true. He sent me all the way to AA, and that's when I met Ricky, and I was his roommate the time that I was down there. And, by the way, he would always send me down anyway uh, because I had options. You know, I had got to the big leagues at just uh, 19 going on 20, so I had all my options left. Right. You were the guy so, he could shuttle back and forth. Right. So... He was incredible the fact of the matter that he could uh, get a player on his last leg and get one more season out of him. And so he would, or he would give that person uh, two weeks to show what he had to other scouts. And other scouts would, would buy the material from, from him. So he would make money or else he would get a ball player out of it. So Charlie was pretty much congenial with that. But back to Ricky, uh, uh, the First night I pitched, I didn't pitch very well, and I really didn't generally pitch well anyway the first couple of starts because he always let me sit down there for four starts and bring me back. So I knew I had another three starts left. And I didn't do well. So I got back to the room that night, and Ricky looked at me and said, Damn, man, you garbage. You used to be great. What the hell's going on with you? <laughs> tell, tell me what you're really thinking, Ricky. <laughs> yeah, this you know, telling a, a major league that I'm garbage. I'm looking at him like, what the hell? You know? But I absorbed it because I went, wow, well, you know, you're really not pitching well in the big leagues either, you know? And so I had to take that with a grain of salt. I sucked it up and really started working hard and, and got myself up to the back to the big leagues within three stars. But that turned my career around because I saw the passion and the lust that he had for that game. And that rubbed off on me. You know, you told me when uh, we were having a conversation about a week ago uh, for my book, you told me that Ricky was a guy that tried to avoid the trainer's room, if at all possible, but you saw the kinds of things that he did to try and preserve his body because Ricky took a beating. Well, I tell you what, thank God there were ice machines in the hotel. He would take a sanitary sock, a baseball sock, that stretched, and he would fill that sock up with ice, and he would put it on the necessary places on his body, which was extremely needed. And the reason why he self-medicated himself at the hotel was because he was taught to not be seen in that training room. And I think that's another black stereotype for black ball players: we're not to be seen in that in that in that training room. White guys could be in the training room, but black guys can't. I'm assuming because of the stereotype that's saying that you're dogging it. Exactly. And so Ricky experienced that in New York when he got to the Yankees. He had a hamstring pull, which was really severe. 
what they didn't know is that if you look at Ricky's thighs, those aren't normal human being thighs. So when he got a muscle tear, that's really deep, deep, deep in that muscle. Okay? And so Billy Martin was the smartest that he ever that I ever saw that it was addressed in a matter because he had one in Oakland. It wasn't as bad as the one in New York, but he had it in Oakland and Billy addressed him with it like this. He said, Ricky, if you could play, go out and play. Because your seventy percent is someone else's one hundred percent. Ricky was able to suck it up and go get that man 100% every time he went out and played for him. Well, let, let's talk about Billy because when, when Billy came on, the the fortunes of the A's started to, to turn around. And obviously a huge part of that in, in 1980 was, was not only that being Ricky's first full year in, in the majors. And, and you know he broke in in a big way, stealing a ton of bases and basically showing what kind of player he was going to be. But also that starting rotation that you guys had. You and Rick Langford and Steve McCaddy and uh, all those guys who were out there just... Basically, you guys were your own bullpen. The the, the bullpen wasn't seeing a, a, a lot of action in terms of saving games because you guys had a remarkable number of complete games that season. Well, you know... And this is no disrespect to my bullpen because they're all major league ball players. But the fact of the matter was, we didn't have a Dennis Eckersley out there. Okay? And when you as a starter go eight and a third innings and you look out there and you see yourself as equivalent as to what's out there and better, then you keep yourself in. And that was basically simple as that. On top of that, Billy Martin would come out and give you that look that if you, after he asked you, how do you feel? And if you didn't comply with that real soon, he gave you to look like uh, you were something feminine. And so from there, he just said, hey, I started telling him, get the hell out of here. And so he would just turn around and walk away. <laughs> now, you you had 24 complete games that year. And I mean that's a, that, that's well that's more than a career for for most guys now. I mean you got guys that'll pitch ten years uh, in the major leagues as a guy taking the ball every fifth day, and maybe they'll have five or ten complete games. So obviously the game has changed tremendously, but it's legendary some of the uh, games that you had. I mean, for instance, I, I got to go back to July of 1980 when you threw a 14 inning complete game against the Baltimore Orioles. How the heck does a guy go out there and throw a 14-inning complete game, Mike? I, I can't explain it to you other than there's a formula to it, which is called a pitch count. And I would try to throw no more than 13 pitches an inning. And in that 14-inning game, I wound up with only 152 pitches in 14 innings. And that's really that's really very good. Because you, you yeah. know, we were talking about that last week, and when you said 152 pitches, I said, well, that's not bad. Which, you no, know, no. <laughs> people think that's crazy to say that, but for 14 innings, that means you're you're throwing 11 pitch innings, which is yeah, yeah. very efficient. So, it's just, uh, it's just the process of throwing strikes and staying ahead of the hitters. And I think, even if you have mediocre stuff, if you can throw strikes and stay ahead of the hitters, then you have a chance of making it at least to the sixth inning. Okay, and this is why you have so many pitchers nowadays that go five and a third, six and a third innings. And that being is because they don't have that stuff or enough stuff to get that third time and around to order that guy out the third time after he sees you three times. And that's the whole key. Now, you add some guts on top of that, and, and now you got a nine in a pitcher. Now, as a kid growing up, that's all I knew. There were no relief pitchers, you know, around. And so... You went nine in it. So my conditioning aspect has always been to go nine in it. You went nine innings, the vast majority of your starts in in 1980, and you also went 22 and nine with a 253 ERA. You tied with Steve Stone for the most first place votes in the Cy Young uh, Award balloting that year, and you finished a close second to him. A, a lot of people, myself included, look at the numbers and. Really, the only the only statistical category that that Stone had you in was was wins. Other than that, you you pretty much checked every other box. And I've always felt that that you you got robbed of that one, Mike. 
feel the same way as you do. It's my exact sentiments, but uh, you know, that's just the way the ball bounces. You know, I want to ask you, uh, going back here in the in the early 1980s and through those years that you played for Billy, the big criticism that gets levied at Billy from his time managing the, the A's is people will say that he worked you guys in the starting rotation to death. And none of you guys had particularly long careers, uh, despite being some very good pitchers. Do you believe that there's any validity to those criticisms that, uh, that that Billy contributed to you guys breaking down sooner than you would have? Well, I don't think you throw that on Billy because we were all grown men and all we had to do was say no. If I had the opportunity or a chance to do this all over again, I'd do it the same way. There's only one way to play baseball, and that's to win. There's only one way to coach baseball or manage baseball, and that's to win. So... When that's all you have, that's all you have. And so I I just didn't see it happening any other way but the way it went down. Now, I want to talk about something that we didn't get to the last time that we talked on the phone, and that is the the day that you had a dust-up with Big Dave Winfield. Now, there's a lot of guys in baseball in the 70s and 80s that I probably would be reluctant to cross but Dave Winfield is somewhere near the top of that list. So take me back to that day. I think it was at Yankee Stadium, I want to say. What, what happened when uh, Big Dave was uh, ready to come after you? Well, I have to concur that that probably was the most feared moment in my life. <laughs> Understandable. About six feet six, and I think he was going about 230 pounds without an ounce of fat on him. And as he was coming to the mound, he began to get bigger. Now, I'm standing <laughs> on two feet of elevated dirt, and that one I couldn't figure out. But uh, as he got closer to me, as about he had made it to the dirt part of the pitcher's mound, my catcher had trailed him all the way out. And when he got to the dirt, he yelled out on me, he said, he called, He dropped a big N-word on me, and then he said, I should kick your little skinny ass. <laughs> as soon as he said that, Mike Heath grabbed him behind his belt buckle in the back to try to curtail him and contain him. Well, he said to Mike Heath as he turned around, he said, but I'm going to start with your ass first. <laughs> and he grabs Mike Heath around the wow. neck and him like a rag doll as his feet were dangling from the ground and that was probably the most awesome display of strength I've ever witnessed in my life. I kind of visualized my little neck at 172 pounds probably being broken. <laughs> I mean this guy, this, he was just wow, just totally angry. So I think he disapproved of getting thrown at it, which I really didn't throw at him. Uh, it was meant to be pitched inside but I wasn't throwing at him. And I did get up on him pretty good because the ball wound up in the back of the middle of the net in Yankee Stadium in, in the backstop. So it had a ride to it. And it went right under his chin. So, it, you know, he didn't have much time to react. So he was getting the heck out of there. And so after he waves Mike Heath around like a like a puppet for a while, <laughs> what happens next? Well, everybody emerged onto the, to the pitcher's mound. And we started breaking it up. And so... That was ball four, and I think he walked on that pitch, yeah. Now, you told me that there were certain advantages you felt to pitching in the American League as far as being able to work inside, but you never have to, you never have to bat. Yeah, well, that enables you a little more liberty out there on the mound because in the National League, you got to grow up and you're probably going to take your lumps with, you know. So, But it was an interesting concept was developed uh, by Tony Larusa, and uh, and if you hit one of Tony's big guys, he wasn't going to just hit whoever was coming up in the lineup next. He was going to wait and get your big guy. Yeah, Tony. So had that stopped a lot of that stuff. I think uh, guys throwing at guys. Yeah, you know, because you, you can't get your big guy hurt. You know, Tony. Tony went Old Testament with it, right? It was just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
That, that too, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he, he, he also started running all these dang relief pitchers out there too. I don't know how you would have liked playing for uh, Tony because he would have he had you out of there and that had the setup man in the game probably. Well, you know, I wouldn't have mind going seven innings and then giving the ball or eight innings and giving the ball to accuracy. I wouldn't have had a problem with that. As a matter of fact, I think I would have enjoyed that. <laughs> You probably would have had a few more wins. Uh, exactly, you know, and uh, probably would have, wouldn't have been able to have the arm trouble I had, you know, so there's a lot of ways to look at that. Well, let's talk about that. When, when t- Take me back to when you, you, you first started to have arm trouble and when you realized that something wasn't right. Well, it was a strike year, and after about 60-something days, I don't know, I think it lasted something like that, there was no strike prior to that that lasted over 30 days. So after the 30th day, I stopped working out because I thought the season was over. Mm-hmm. And I obviously got out of shape. So they called us back to play ball. My first start back, I pitched five innings. I come out and I'm leading. I think I won. I don't, I'm not sure. The second game, I got what you call arm fatigue. So it's not a storm or anything, but your fastball just doesn't have any life. And I went through that for the majority of that second half of that season until about the last two or three games of the season, and then my arm came back. But the next season, Billy, for some reason, got a little bit too smart, and he invited kids from double-A in the spring training. So we from double-A and triple-A in spring training with us, and so we wound up not getting the innings pitches we needed. I think I left spring training with 11 innings. I mean, that was ridiculous. And so we got a bad start, and we were over-pitching, and, and things it just started snowballing after that, man. Arm was just killing me the whole year. Now, one of the things that I find most interesting about your career is you were able to make it back to the major leagues, I think, seven years after uh, you, you, know, you had previously pitched. You came back in... 1990 and won a game and as i understand it you're the you're the only pitcher uh in the history of the oakland a's to have won a game in three different decades i, I think i was the only pitcher that had a conference that since uh, world war ii that's over four years and come back to the major league that's a heck of a thing how do you pull yourself all the way back? Because I mean, I would think that there's got to be a lot of doubts uh, along the way when you when you've been out of the big leagues for that long. Well, you know, I was blessed with an immense, immense amount of talent. I think that that was true. The fact that as a 19 year old going for my first major league start, I saw a three hit shot. I was a winning pitcher and a dominant pitcher. So. With just maybe 20% of that ability gone, I still had an immense amount of ability left. Mm-hmm. And that's I knew how to pitch. Now, you mix that in with some pride and anger that the fact that I had put myself in that situation, uh, not only the arm trouble, but, you know, I had the drug problem. And so the combination of the two things kept me out of baseball. How how bad, Mike, would you say overall the, the drug issue was in baseball? Because, you know, I remember back at the time you had the whole Pittsburgh cocaine trial and all that business going on also. Well, you know, mine was, was the lesser of the uh, the three different phases of, of, I guess, punitive actions that were taken against you. I was on the list of the, the, third, the third list. Um... So I wasn't a part of the Pittsburgh crowd. Those were the people that were on the number one. But I did check myself into a rehab so that I could take care of whatever the suspension or whatever they were going to do. I, I went on and took care of that myself. So that should have qualified me for taking care of, the, uh, of my transgression, I guess. But when my contract ended in 85, no one picked me up. I'm a 20-game winner, and, you know, as bad as people need pitching, I'm two years removed from the game, and I can't get a job. So I was blackballed. And so that was just a a, a real tough thing to keep going because I had to go down to an independent team in San Jose and play. And I did well there, but I didn't get picked up. 
Then I had to go back the next year, and they refused to let me play because they said contractually in the contract that I was an embarrassment to uh, uh, making a mockery out of the league because it was too easy. So I had to go wind up going to Mexico to play, which was a consistent of a summer league and a winter league. And that was tough on me. I survived the summer league. I caught the Montezuma's Revenge, which is a... <laughs> Oh, yeah, and that's why well, I stumbled. It lasts for three days, and on the second day, just asked the Lord to take it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I came home, and that's when I got on the phone and called up Sandy Allen, who was the general manager, and asked him to give me another shot. And he said, I deserve one. I paid enough dues, so he gave me a, another shot at it. So that's how I got back into the major league. That's pretty good stuff. That takes some perseverance. I, I wanted to ask you one thing that uh, I have here that uh, I, I certainly don't want to miss the opportunity to, to talk to you about is the friendship that you had with Glenn Burke, uh, who, who I know was uh, you know a, a very good friend of yours and uh, a, a guy who, uh, you know, uh, now, you know, people talk more about Glenn. Uh, you know, you're starting to hear his name some and people are talking about, uh, you know his role as a as, as a pioneer as a as a gay man uh, playing professional sports in America. What are your memories of Glenn as a guy and and what he went through as a homosexual playing in the major leagues at, at that particular period in time when it's just something that that really wasn't talked about at all. Well, first of all, I'd like to say Glenn was probably about the most charismatic person that you would ever want to meet. You know, just a great personality. Fun-loving, happy-go-lucky guy, but I think that his sexuality uh, made baseball second in his life, and uh, I think he went from a good ball player to maybe an average ball player statistically, and that wasn't Glenn. So uh, having to deal with uh, one that wasn't accepted, him being an individual that wasn't accepted, and so uh, it was tough for him to live that lie. Uh, but, you know, I respect him as a man because he was man enough to see the writing on the wall and he just walked away because he didn't see anything that was going to come out of that with any positivity. And so, you know, having HIV to turn to full-blown AIDS, man, took him out of here. It's such a shame. When Jason Collins became the the first pro athlete in any of the big four sports to come out as a gay man, it's almost as though that kind of threw a little bit more attention back on Glenn and uh, you know what he what his career experience was like. Was it sort of an open secret within the team of uh, Glenn's sexuality, or what was the situation there as far as his teammates knowing or or, or not knowing that he was a gay guy? Uh, he acted very masculine, uh, but there were rumors around. And so when you don't see him with the female ever, and then when you go on a 14-day road trip and come back and you're ready to see your wife or your girlfriend and then he's got two men picking him up at the airport, then you go, hmm. So, you know, uh, I went through some deceitful and despicable things to try to find out was he gay, like uh, tricking him up into my room and, and, and having a couple girls there and and watching him freak out and run out of there and pretty much. and uh, So, you know, it, it became inevitable to me. But the guy was just so charismatic and, and such down-earth people, and he had such fun with, you know, with his life. I mean, you know, he was just great to be around. I mean, what a sense of humor he had as well, so... You know, you take the sexuality away, and he was just a regular guy. Who am I to judge him after I was one of the most homophobic people that you ever wanted to meet? You know, so he sure changed my outlook on gays. I have a better a social awareness of where this is now. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. And uh, and that, that's that's a pretty good legacy for for Glenn to to leave behind. Uh, right. You know, I, I want to ask you about Ricky because some of the Ricky Henderson stories that people tell are the kind of stories that you almost wonder if some of them are true. They're almost too good to be true kind of stories. You know, basically, I'll just say, what what's your best Ricky Henderson story? Well, let's see. <laughs> so the Yankees were in town. 
And we usually sell out when the Yankees in town. Of course, all the Yankee people, uh, Billy Martin fans, etc. So uh, our announcer, Ray Fox, goes, well, Ricky, we understand uh, the A's attendance is pretty much a sellout when the Yankees come. And he said, yeah. He said, two-thirds of the people come to see the A's. Two-thirds of the people come to see Billy Martin. And two-thirds of the people come to see Ricky. <laughs> I'm not sure about the math there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get out a calculator for that, Mike. Yeah, you listen to it on the postcard show in the clubhouse. We were rolling, right? Steve McCandy has was, was, got a great sense of humor himself. So Ricky comes in the clubhouse after the interview, and McCandy goes, Hey, Ricky, how many ballparks were we playing in, man? <laughs> <laughs> He came over. He came over with six thirds there, pretty much, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. I think that's two ballparks. I think that yeah. maybe two ballparks worth of people coming out. Yeah, that was hilarious, man. Hey, listen, if you can get on base uh, uh, four times out of ten and steal uh, uh, eighty bases a year, then you can do whatever math you want. I guess, right? He know how to make it sixty feet. I mean, ninety feet, man, all the time. <laughs> That's all that matters, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Mike, let's talk about what you've got going on today because you're doing some stuff that that I think is really interesting and some stuff that I think is really important too. But but where I want to start is something that I I had no idea until I talked to you for the first time that you're a poet. I mean, you have really taken to poetry in recent years, and I know it's something that's really important to you and a way that you're able to express your thoughts on a, on a lot of different issues. When did you realize that, that poetry was something that you had a talent for and, and that you wanted to pursue? Well, you know, I'm spiritually guided. You know, I believe in my Heavenly Father, and there's no way in the world what I'm able to put down on paper comes from me. It physically does, but it doesn't come from me mentally or spiritually. And a couple of years ago, I got down on my knees because of my my physical uh, inadequacies right now, my disability, by me not being able to walk. I walk, but I walk with two support sticks, like crutches. Mm-hmm. And I prayed to the Heavenly Father, could you compensate my physicalities with more, with more knowledge and wisdom? And so it appears that uh, he he brought poetry to me, and you know I've never been a dummy, and I could always articulate myself. So it, it came quite easily, actually. And as I began to write, I was guided to write about things that were that weren't exactly fair in life, things that that were kind of negative in a sense that that needed some positivity put to them. So I, I've written about many good things. I've even written children's books. And and so it's just an immense talent that I have, and it's just untapped. And it seems like I could do this the rest of my life. It gives me so much comfort and freedom and the truth. Tell me about. Tell me first about the children's books, because I, I know that you that you have done that. I haven't seen those. I've, I've been lucky enough. You've shared some of your work for me that is more about issues re- related to society and, and the game of baseball and things of that nature. But what about the children's books? How was that process, and how did you enjoy putting something together for kids to read? Well, you know, where I live out here in Oakland, California, there's an awful amount of, of dysfunction and disparity with the underserved and underprivileged children out here. And so I speak of education and mentoring and nutrition. Those three things are a necessity in order for one to have wellness. And the title of, of my book is You Can't Get Home Until You Touch All the Bases. So on first base is education, on second base is nutrition, on third base is mentoring, and when you get home, that's wellness. Uh, the characteristics of wellness, I address the things like bullying, truancy, vandalism, things of that nature. And then I, the positive things, you know, dedication, sportsmanship, hygiene, respect. And so I address all these things. So uh, I have uh, 
a calendar that I made that is kind of a part of my entrepreneurial adventures. And, and, and the calendar, it teaches kids math, English, science, geography, and nutrition. And then I have a little booklet that goes with it. And it talks about gangs, bullying, the truancy, drugs, alcohol, vandalism. And like I said, the good aspects of it are sportsmanship, respect, and dedication. That's fantastic. And I'm also, like I said, very spiritual. And so I'm very much trying to have a youth foundation that I'm just not able to get off the ground because of funding. And it's really a shame because the avenues that I'm taking with this to get the education, you know, they have a new education of, of the future now. It's, it's called STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And so we, we have people to teach this, these things to these kids. And it's just, uh, it, it levels the playing field because the underprivileged kids are now able to get software now. We're doing a lot of things, but we just can't get the funding to run this baseball program with the education, the mentoring, and, and the nutrition aspect with it. I, I want to talk to you about that because one of the things that that I find troubling, and uh, I, I know I'm not alone in this, is the declining uh, participation uh, of our young black athletes in, in baseball, where you've got more and more kids that are, that are choosing to, to pursue basketball or pursue football, and the percentage of Major League Baseball players who are black has declined. It's it's really crashed since the since the 1970s and 1980s. What do we have to do, Mike, to see those numbers come back up and, and, and approach where they used to be during your career? Well, first of all, they've taken the wonderful game away from the communities, the neighborhoods, the black communities, and they replaced them with soccer fields. So this is a part of the gentrification. Now, the major leagues have gone over to the Dominican Republic, and all 30 major league teams have an academy over there. Over here in America, we have three academies due to the major leagues, and they're working on another three right now. So that's six compared to 30. I don't understand that concept. Well, it's proven that the best talent in the world comes right here in our great nation. But we know the economics behind it. Uh, the Dominican players or the Latin players, you can go out and get – Sign five of those guys for twenty five thousand, opposed to one guy for an American for one hundred fifty thousand. But at the same time, socially, uh, Major League Baseball is is doing these these urban kids an injustice because it's more to it than the economics. Uh, they should be also concerned about the development of life or individuals need to have decent lives. So, you know, this is what I'm trying to to do as far as leveling the playing field, give these kids this opportunity. Because, uh, let's face it, baseball is an expensive game. In order to play it, uh, such as opposed uh, uh, to basketball and football, where all they need is a football or a basketball to go out and get a game going. Well, with baseball, you got to have an aluminum bat. That's a couple hundred bucks. A glove and a ball. That's just street ball. We're not talking about organized ball. So they had a travel ball league now. And, and so that could cost you up to $1,500 to play in one of those. These kids are playing year-round now. It's exactly. so different than even when I was a kid. Black kids are just being left out on the game. They're being priced out of the game. Simple as that. Economic. You know, Mike, I know uh, how important it is to you with your background and your history in the game and, uh, you know, seeing these young people and wanting them to have the have the opportunity to pursue not only athletics, but pursue these other things that are just going to allow them to have a better quality of life. Exactly. And one other thing that I want to talk to you about, I know that you are actively involved with a, a medical issue right now that is affecting a, a lot of people. Yeah, uh, I'm working with a wonderful woman, Angela Wheeler, and it's the Ann Weaver Foundation fighting sarcoidosis. Not many people in this nation know about, but it is it has taken such great people from us, such as Reggie White, Bernie Mac, the people, some people that have it are uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr.'s father has it. Tisha Campbell, that used to play on Martin, 
she has it. Mm -hmm. So there's a amount of people that have it, but the black people I'm naming, I'm naming these black people because it affects more black females from the age 20 to 50. You know, there's a lot of research that needs to be done so in the future we could find a cure for this. You know, it affects uh, the lung, you can go blind, and uh, yeah, it's, an, it's a pretty horrifying disease when it takes full effect. Mike, I can't uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. You're you're a guy who has who's led an interesting life, and who you know, frankly, we know you for your baseball career and all the uh, great pitching that you did for the A's. But I think you're doing uh, you know really uh, uh, your most important work right now, and uh, I think that it's good that people are aware of what you're doing and how you're trying to give back to the community. Uh, you know, I'd love to have you back on the podcast again. Great. That sounds fantastic. That sounds great, Rick. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Great pleasure. Been a fan of yours for many years. And, uh, you know, I can really say and I can really tell people that Mike Norris is one of the good guys in baseball. Well, I'm a fan of you right now myself. So, uh, God bless you, man. And uh, we'll stay in touch. My thanks to Mike Norris. He has a book of poetry in the works about baseball and some of the issues that are facing the game today and that have faced the game throughout the years. And I look forward to seeing that project completed and hopefully when it is, we can get Mike back on the show again. If you're interested in donating or providing assistance to Mike's youth program, get in touch with me and I'll gladly direct your message on to Mike, who is a class guy. And I'm sorry to say it, Steve Stone, but he really did deserve that 1980 American League Cy Young Award. My guest next week, is a three-time Major League All-Star and the first third-generation player in Major League history. He's also the author of a new book about he and his family's experiences in their over half-century in the big leagues. Brett Boone will join me next time on the podcast, and we'll talk about everything from his childhood sleepovers at Pete Rose's house to what Ichiro Suzuki is really like to his thoughts on the game today. But until then, remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. I'll see you next time. <laughs>